Hello everybody and welcome back to Ear Read This, Edinburgh's most powerful book podcast. I hope you've had a chance to catch yesterday's episode on Sylvia Plath's poem, The Jailer. The subject matter of the poem is very grim, but it's still very juicy and shivery in all the usual Plathian ways. So I really enjoyed going through it line by line, trying to analyse what was going on. And I also had a fantastic guest in Emily Van Dyne, who joins me again in today's episode for an extended interview. If you missed The Jailer, Emily is a poet, writer and Fulbright scholar who has written pieces on Plath for the American Poetry Review, Harvard Review, Electric Literature, Lit Hub and many more besides. I'll leave a link to some of those in the episode description box below. Just yesterday, she hosted a symposium on Plath and Transatlanticism and her book Loving Sylvia Plath is due out later this year. In today's episode, we talk about her process writing the book, what loving Sylvia Plath should mean, and further explored some of the biographical themes of The Jailer. But we started off by talking about fictional representations of Plath. Funnily enough, I've just started reading the, the novel Wintering by Kate oh, Moses. Kate Moses, yeah. Literally, when, uh, when I sort of stopped reading it uh, this morning, I'd got to the chapter that, you know, the chapters are all named after poems. Yeah. I literally got to the one that is The Jailer. So I thought... That's serendipitous. Well, that's, a pr- I mean, I haven't read that since college, uh, but mm. I remember, uh, I remember liking parts of it. I thought the structure was, was interesting. It's, I always struggle with these like fictional representation or imaginative, I should say, representations of Sylvia. There were things about it that I liked a lot. I should go back and revisit it. Cause like I said, I was in college when I, when I read it and I'm almost 42. So it's, it's been quite some time. And I think I was less inclined to enjoy the artistry of something like that then because I was like much more obsessed with her biography and so I always felt like I was looking for some kind of like reveal that never came from Mm. film or from books like Kate Moses's Wintering so yeah which I think is like part of the problem with the way that Plath has been constructed right that we're like we always think that either we know everything and we should stop talking about her or we think, oh, there's something that's being like hidden for me. And so I, I was just talking about this actually the other day with, um, uh, oh, with Paul Alexander who wrote uh, Magic and also Edge, a play about uh, Sylvia Plath. And um, we were talking about a couple of different things and he's working on something that's sort of in the same arena as what I'm working on. And he's like, well, I don't want to like steal your thunder. And I was like, no, I think that like, it's such a bad way to think about it, right? Like, because I think because again, going back to how she's been constructed, we have these ideas of Plath as like this pie that everyone gets like a certain amount of and you're like, you, you can be stealing someone else's pie. And I, I want to be clear, I'm not saying it's like, okay to steal someone's work. It's of course it's not, but Plath is not this like finite entity, right? She's like, is this woman who was a historical woman and produced all this extraordinary work that like continues to contribute to the discourse in these incredible ways. And so I think it's much more useful to think about her in that way and also be supportive of one another's scholarship and creative work on her instead of like being cat fighty about it. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. It just, uh, it put me in mind of, um, I think it was one of your articles you mentioned towards the end, you were responding to someone who said, you know, um, who was criticizing the industry of, the plath industry and you were saying you know they make it sound like a big this big thing and but off the top of your head i don't know when the article was written you said you, i think you said something like this i think there's about 13 biographies and i was actually surprised because i you know I, I maybe there's more since then but i i, I actually thought there'd be more than that 
I think people think there's like hundreds. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because of quotes like that. Like Anne Stevenson said that in a letter to the New York Review of Books in 2013. Um, and she called it like the ever thriving plath industry or something. And of course, like the irony of that, since she was the only sanctioned plath biographer, like she was the only one that the Hughes estate, or like not the, the plath estate was run by the Hughes approved of. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I think at the times I wrote that in the summer, late summer, early fall of, of 2020. And that was, um, I think I was reviewing Heather Clark's Red Comet mm. for Lit Hub. So I did like a count. And at the time, I think there were 13. And so, of course, Red Comet came out. And then also uh, Gail Crothers, Three Martini Afternoons at the Ritz, which is a dual biography of Plath and Sex. I know you talked to Gail. I heard your podcast. It was wonderful. Oh, thank you. Yeah, she's one of my dear friends. And so... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think like I tried to count as comprehensively as I could. Maybe I was off by like one or two or three and, you know, more will come out. But like, I've never understood why that's what's the problem with that? Like nobody mm. would say like enough with the Hemingway biographies, you know, like I, that would never happen. Um, but somehow there's this like obsession that like we have to get the last word on Sylvia. And I, I, I'm really, I have some ideas about why we think that way, but I think that it's a bad way to think about any, any artist or any human's life. Um, and I loved Heather's book. I thought it was wonderful, but, uh, I was really troubled by the discourse that surrounded it because so much of it was like, finally the one we need and now we can all be done. And I'm like, no, not really, you know? I hadn't thought about that at the time, but I, I did really, the, every review I read had that kind of, here it is at last type. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I just thought that was really sort of grim and unsurprising. Yeah. I mean, like even when Ted Hughes was writing about Sylvia and her work, like in the like mid to late 1960s and um, early 1970s, he was constantly saying things like that. I mean, he sort of famously now had this idea that her aerial poems were like the only thing that she ever wrote that were like worth anything so he called everything that like led up to the aerial poems waste products um yeah i know what a gem he was anyway <laughs> uh yeah he did and and it's funny i was just rereading a bunch of poems from 1960 and i was just like these are so extraordinary like and they're not included in in aerial but they're amazing poems and so he like he's when he was trying to convince aurelia uh plath sylvia's mother that she should publish the bell jar in the United States, which she like, really didn't want to do for, I mean, if you read it, so obvious reasons, right? Like the mother character is, mm. she understood as a portrayal of her in a very unflattering light. Um, he said like, oh, we'll just do it because like no one's going to read it. And in a couple of years, it'll just be like of interest to scholars. Uh, <laughs> you know, too bad, Ted, it didn't, <laughs> didn't work out that way. Um, but that's, but thank God he thought that. that. Yeah. Well, I don't know that he, I mean, that's one example of many, many things of that light that, uh, that he said about, about Sylvia's work. Um, but I'm not totally sure. I mean, I think if he did think that about the bell jar, I, I have a feeling he may not have thought that he just wanted to see it in print and make money off of it. Who knows? Mm. Regardless, that was sort of part and parcel of the things that he would say about Sylvia's work. So I think that's part of why we have that ongoing discourse that like, we're just going to be done now. No more. I thought it was, it was particularly like a bit of a sick joke that, that uh, Plath industry comment, because the the bit that about Plath that's sort of marketable is all the crap sort of tabloidy side of things, you know, um, which a good biography is seeking to 
um, debunk and and move and move past. So to it, it, it seemed like exactly the wrong people to accuse of being class profiteers. Yeah, well, the part of the issue with that, just historically um, speaking, is that the Hughes saw anyone who didn't sort of write the story exactly the way that they wanted it to be written as like a tabloid writer, right? So um, even somebody like Linda Wagner Martin, uh, who was like a like a heavy hitter feminist scholar in the United States, and um, I mean feminist literary scholar. She wrote a, a lot of biographies of, um, of women writers and she was not like, that's all she was writing. She like most of what she wrote came out or I shouldn't say wrote, she's still alive, but most of what she has written came out with scholarly presses and university presses. And, you know, it was like very serious minded scholarship and the Plath book went to Simon and Schuster, obviously because, you know, in the eighties, like Plath was, you know, well, she's still incredibly famous. Um, so it had more of a popular bent, but they also like painted her as this like ugly tabloid writer, you know, who was just like saying all these things to, to make money. And they also had insane ideas about book advances. Um, like there's a letter that Ted Hughes wrote to Ann Stevenson. I mean, I don't know for sure what Paul Alexander got for his book advance for Rough Magic, but it was in the eighties. And he says something to the effect of like, oh, Linda Wagner Martin and Paul Alexander, they got book advances for $150,000. And I'm like, that seems not real at all, Ted, you know? <laughs> I mean, literary biography, I think Carl Rollison was like, yeah, most sell about 6,000 copies. And I remember being like, oh, how many copies did American Isis sell? And he was like, about 6,000 copies. You know, that was his first biography of Plath. So, and, and Carl's an, a wonderful writer and that book was really well received. It was like reviewed in the New York Times and the Atlantic, you know, mm. so people also have these kind of wild ideas uh, that Plath is this like money-making machine, which is like, no, no. Yeah, I mean, no literary biography is, right? Like, there's just not. No, I mean, if you were going, if you wanted to try and make a quick book out of um, out of her legacy, you wouldn't write a thousand page <laughs> biography. That took like eight years to write. Yeah. I mean, even if you did, like, I, again, I have no idea what the details of Heather's contract were, but like, okay, let's say you get a hundred thousand dollars over eight years. I mean, that's, you know, you're not, you're not quitting your job over that. I mean, no. unless you're no. married rich or whatever. So yeah, no, it, it's, it's a silly proposition, but again, it, it feeds this mythology that we have which I actually also has like some has like older roots right because um like Diane Middlebrook who wrote her husband she's a wonderful uh feminist scholar um and have you read that that book I haven't no it's 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 in my uh, basket at the moment along with poison and um oh, poison is by Shay Susan Schaefer Susan Fromberg Schaefer yeah who was American uh, novelist and um, was actually really good friends with Ted Hughes. So I'm really not sure how Poison got written. That's a different different conversation. We should do a whole podcast just on Poison. Oh yeah, yeah. I couldn't put that book down. I was like, this is mesmerizing. She is a wonderful writer, um, or was she passed away in 2011? I think. Um, but anyway, uh, so in, in Diane Middlebrooks, her husband, which is this fantastic biography, she says it's a biography of the Plath and Hughes marriage, but then Plath dies like a third of the way into the book. So the rest of it is about Ted Hughes's life. But then she sort of like keeps at this idea that even though Plath was dead, Hughes was like honoring their marriage and still felt married to her. And Bate kind of picked up on that in his biography of Ted Hughes saying that like, 
well, his argument, which forgive me if I can, I got to get this out without laughing out loud, but his argument was that Hughes, when Hughes was cheating on his wife and Carol uh, Orchard Hughes, uh, he was doing it because he was being faithful to his dead Sylvia Plath. <laughs> I know it's a, it's a doozy. It's a very logical, but anyway, so Middlebrook doesn't say that, but she does uh, sort of keep up this idea that, um, that Hughes was like still married to Plath even after she died. Right. And that like his editing of her work and like his conversation in poetry with her work was like his way of continuing the marriage. Um, however, one of the things that she writes about early on in the book is how Hughes's friends at Cambridge, like hated Sylvia Plath for the most part, because they were envious. Like they didn't want Ted sort of taken away from them. It broke up their group and a lot of like very typical stuff. Um, but also because they had this idea that she was this rich American, which of course Plath was like not rich at all. So I think there are also fairly uh, kind of like deep roots about Plath and money. This idea that, that, that Plath was this like, you know, kind of like hustler and swindler who came in and like ruined Ted's perfection. And like Hughes also famously said, at uh, Plath's funeral reception, like in, an, in a, a bitter, angry way, he said to Jillian Becker, she made me professional. Like in other words, like he just was this sort of like, he was just loping around Cambridge, like writing verses and being free. And then she was like, no, you should make money off of this. Yeah, because I mean, she got his first major publication. She did, yeah. By sending off his poems. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, to a, um, a YMCA uh, contest. Uh, I yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, and the judges were like Marion Moore and Stephen Spender and Auden. Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. yeah, it's a big deal. Strange thing to complain about later. It is a strange thing to complain about, but it's also really important if you think about their professional legacy because... Um, his professional legacy and his creative legacy really suffered after she died. And I think that's partly because he was in a state of, of abject grief, but I also think it's partly because he lost his secretary and his agent. Yes. Yeah, I mean, she wrote to Peter Davison. I'm sorry, I keep interrupting you and you're supposed to be asking. No, 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 not at all. This is really, really interesting. Also, I think I, I, I started off by saying the jailer, but actually I think this is really well setting the scene for some of the things going on in, in the jailer. So I, yeah. So too. Yeah. We can definitely transition into the jailer because of course the last letter, what would he do, do without me? Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So sorry, Peter Davison. Well, so Peter Davison, who was one of, he was like Plath's old boyfriend. They had a, mm. an affair in the summer of, I want to say 1955. Yes. 1955, right before she left for Cambridge. And he uh, had gone to Harvard and he, at the time he was working for Harvard University Press, I believe. And he went on to work for um, the Atlantic Monthly for, he was like their longtime poetry editor uh, and was the poetry editor there when Plath was sending like her most kind of famous poems there in fall of 1962. Um, and then the Atlantic Monthly had a press which I don't think exists anymore. And he worked uh, for that press in the 1960s and 70s. So that's a little bit about who Davison was and they met and like had a fling. And so she counted him sort of among her professional contacts that were useful especially after she went to England, right? Because he was working for, you know, a big magazine. So she, there's actually a letter she wrote him in spring 1956 when she was falling in love with Ted Hughes. 
And she tells him like, my major project right now is working as an agent for this writer, Ted Hughes. And she does tell him eventually in the letter, oh, by the way, also we're in love and I plan to marry him. Um, but she, she starts out with this very professional bent, right? And you can tell that she's kind of pitching Ted Hughes to Peter Davison. Like, well, listen, this is someone to sort of look out for and know about. Um, and she, she took that role very, very seriously. And I think that that is um, like you'll frequently you'll read that she typed up his first manuscript and, and sent it off in biographies. But then the way that she continued that uh, role in his professional life is then kind of like swept to the wayside. But if you like if you read her letters, you know, I mean, that mm. never she never stopped doing that until uh, the marriage ended. How interesting. I've also never read about how that that's that part of the relationship started like whether it was you know Hughes obviously being crap at that side of things and asked for help or, or whether sort of Plath kind of offered to do that well and, and it's what's important to to think about too is um is that Plath like it wasn't like she just like was like well I wonder what contests are out. I mean of course there there was some element of that right but she was very carefully choosing where where to send his work um, not just with, in terms of the contest, but also in terms of magazines and in terms of the contest, like she had a relationship with Marianne Moore and with WH Auden. She had studied with Auden at Smith when he was a visiting faculty member, I think her sophomore year. Um, and, uh, Marianne Moore had been a judge of a contest that she, uh, either won or was a finalist for, I don't know off the top of my head when she was a college student as well. So, um, you know, she knew that she was potentially reaching people who would react positively to his work. So, she, I mean, she was thinking like an agent, right. In the best possible way. And she was also doing that for her own work. And in terms of like, I'm pretty sure I don't, again, I'd have to go back and check, but I'm fairly sure that that was her soliciting him. Mm. You know, I mean, I think, cause the other thing that comes across throughout their marriage is this tension where like, Sylvia wants to be this kind of bohemian, but she's not, she's a Puritan from Massachusetts. And, you know, her, everyone there is like concerned about money and status. And, you know, so it's very, very hard for her to kind of say aloud without shame, like, here's my ne'er-do-well poet husband, you know, but she does, right? Like she, she embraces him. I, I mean, I, that's probably unfair. I, I apologize, Ted, Ted Hughes, you were not a ne'er-do-well, but anyway, um, I, I think it was, it was a challenge for her. Right. And so I think part of the way that she was able to justify to herself, the choice of marriage to him, because she really like Heather Clark's book is really, uh, it really elucidates the ways that she was still dating people. Like, almost right up until they decided to get married. Um, I, so I think part of the way that she justified that to herself because he didn't have like prospects, right. Was like, well, he's going to be this great poet and I'm, I'm going to make sure that that happens, you know, and it's going to be financially viable. And I mean, it was quite quickly. Yeah. Amazingly quickly. In our conversation about the jailer, Emily talked about the ways in which Plath's anti-black racist language was often overlooked or even justified by her first readers. And I wanted to ask her why Plath's anti-Semitic language seemed to get more attention in comparison. So I, I don't think, um, and again, this is to the best of my knowledge, so I'm sure that there, there is some literature about this, but a lot of the second wave feminism 
criticism about Plath, it, it doesn't really take on anti-Semitism. Um, so there, there are critiques of Plath's anti-Semitism. And believe me when I tell you like Plath's anti-Semitism is very real. And I, I don't, I don't equate that with her appropriation of Holocaust imagery. I don't think they're the same thing. I, I, I tend to think that like writing off daddy or lady Lazarus because she uses imagery from the Holocaust is like a really sort of like dismissive and shallow way to read those poems. I think that she is that imagery in really kind of extraordinary ways, which is like, that's a whole other conversation. Right. Um, but that's not to say that she doesn't like she, she, in, there are other poems and there are letters where she uses anti-Semitic language in these very obvious ways. So for instance, in Lesbos, which actually happens to be right after the jailer in the collected poems, mm. <laughs> so I can read it to you. Andy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like in the, the first very long stanza, she says, um, the baby smiles, fat snail from the polished lozenges of orange linoleum. You could eat him. He's a boy. You say your husband is just no good to you. His Jew mama guards his sweet sex like a pearl. You have one baby. I have two. I should sit on a rock off Cornwall and comb my hair. I should wear tiger pants. I should have an affair. We should meet in another life. We should meet in air, me and you. So, you know, his Jew mama guards his sweet sex like a pearl is extremely troubling right like there's no like why couldn't you just say his mama right like the the addition of the modifier jew i mean just using that that term right like i unless you're a jewish person i don't think that's necessarily a word that you should be using but besides that it has all these implications of like the hovering Jewish mother, right? The, the sort of incestuousness of it. Some of that comes from Freud, right? Like, I mean, it's just, it's kind of gross. And then of course she uh, referred to the Hughes's in letters from 1962 as inhuman Jewy working class bastards. I know. Yeah. yeah, no, it's ugly, right? It's really, really ugly. And I just think like, if you're going to write about Plath and just be like, Tra-la, I've skipped over all that. Like, yeah, it's not going to see that. <laughs> I mean, I just don't think if we're going to continue to to keep her relevant, um, as as my cat walks literally in that's a, my face. That is the one of the best cat shots I've, I've seen <laughs> on Zoom. <laughs> this is Bert. Hello, Bert. But yeah, I, I mean, you can't keep Plath relevant in the culture that we live in by having a bunch of white women just be like, wasn't she a genius? Wasn't Ted a bastard? Mm. Like, move on. I mean, that's just, that's, we've just, we've done that and it's not good enough, right? So I, uh, I'm fairly sure that there's not a big wealth of literature by second wave feminist critics about anti-Semitism in her work, but there, it, that, that body of work uh, does exist. After I read your, your article, I did think, you know, I, I heard about the you know, the, the Holocaust imagery almost before I read the poem, it, oh, it seemed yeah. like this big thing. Um, and, and this almost like classroom cliche of, of how Plath is taught, which is strange because the, the two instances you've just quoted there seem far more ugly and troubling than, oh, they, than they are. the references to the Holocaust. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think like one of the things that we don't often talk about is like in 1962, there wasn't a lot of imaginative literature about or art period yet about the Holocaust. Like we were still trying to find ways to talk about the Holocaust as a culture in C2, right? Like the Nuremberg trials were, had they, I mean, I'm trying to think of what was the year. I mean, so like Hannah Arendt had not yet written, you know, about Eichmann and the banality of evil. I mean, those things weren't in the lexicon yet. 
Uh, 46 of the Nuremberg oh, Trials. Oh, 46 were really off. Why am I thinking? It's the Eichmann bit that's later. Yeah. yeah. He went on trial in Jerusalem in yeah. the 60s. That's what I'm thinking of. Okay. And so I think like Plath is a person who also understands herself as an immigrant, right? As, as or not as an immigrant, I'm sorry, as the uh, the child of, of immigrants, the child of one immigrant, the grandchild of other immigrants. Her mother, parents were, were from Austria. So she has questions about the Second World War and about uh, what it means to be a German American, like learning about all of these things, right? That, that are like, that's part of the way that she's trying to address those questions. You know, I don't necessarily think, is it exactly right? You know, probably not. Um, but I don't think it's, it comes out of a place of racism or anti-Semitism. I think it comes out of a place of concern, whereas the sort of casual anti-Semitic language she used does come out of a place of anti-Semitism. And somehow we've yeah. not really dealt with that, which I find strange. We spoke in the previous episode about the portrayal of madness and gaslighting in The Jailer. And I wanted to talk more with Emily about how Plath's mental health is sometimes gestured towards to explain both her supposed impossibility as a person and genius as a writer. The the uh, the just crazy bit seems to have such a damaging effect in kind of both directions in, in terms of explaining how problematic and unmanageable Plath was mentally to deal with. Uh, she was just crazy but then also when uh, as you point out uh, in one of your articles or, or it might have been an uh, interview it's also used to describe how good she is as a poet like just oh yeah well that's just because she's crazy you know she was living on the edge of madness you know she she was walking the edge of a finely honed knife I mean just like all you know like oh her poems were wetted or like I mean they're just like really there's so much so much language like that in the especially yeah. the literature from like I'd say the first 15 to 20 years but even now right I mean like there when the 50th anniversary of her death was 2013 and there was like so much like celebratory and of course the audience can't see me but I'm making rabbit ears with my fingers right like celebratory <laughs> literature about her that came out which I, like on the one hand I'm like yes let's celebrate Sylvia Plath but then on the other hand I'm like well, the woman did end her life in agony. I mean, like, maybe we could, like, acknowledge that and not be like, ah, oh, the celebration. But there's always been a kind of obsession with, like, the date that she died. I mean, like, Hughes famously, like, he's put a bunch of stuff away of hers, like, some of her other journals and said, like, not to be opened until the 50th anniversary of her death. And it's like, well, why not the 50th anniversary of her, her birth, right? Or the 75th yeah. anniversary of her birth. But he also was obsessed with this idea of like rebirth with her. And she was too, but she wasn't, I don't think, obsessed with the idea of like literally being reborn out of her suicide. Although I think there are people that would argue that with me. But if you look at some of the literature from 2013, and I'm just going to just scoot over to the internet real quick so I can give you mm. what I mean, if that's okay. So the Atlantic ran a piece about the anniversary of her death and it was called why Sylvia Plath still haunts American culture. Even half a century after her suicide, both her work and her life remain thrilling and horrifying. And so this is the introduction to this piece, piece which I quote at length in loving Sylvia Plath. Her name at this point is almost onomatopoeic, the elegantly coiled haute American Sylvia, poised in serpentine, and then the Germanic exhalation of Plath, its fatal flatness like some ruptured surface resealing itself. Her whole history is in there somehow, the shining prize winner with a death obsession, the supercharged comical terrible talent, 
whose memory is the lid of a sarcophagus. Um, so yeah, I mean, I can't even get through it without being like, okay. Uh, and that's whose memory is the lid of a sarcophagus. The lid of a sarcophagus. Yes. Um, even this like article in that's intended for the general public in a popular American magazine, like a, a literary and cultural one, but still it's like, so super charged with this like obsessive like death obsessed like terrifying language and I just think like if you really do a survey of Plath's work some of that is there but she also is so good at what she does that it doesn't it, like that reads it has the effect of like what a lot of literature literature about her does which is like if, if they seem to be trying to write like her like they've been reading a lot of her work in order to write the article so then when they sit mm. to write about her they're like I'm going to sound like her and it's like don't try man like really you'd be better off letting leaving that to her you know but it also um just leaves us over and over and over again with these uh notions that she was just this this you know manic maniacal death obsessed like woman living on air alone, you know, and like, I don't know, the freezing children and all this, like, it's just not, it doesn't speak to the realities of her life. I, I always think it's so unfair that she gets called death obsessed. There, there's so many people who are, who isn't death obsessed for a start. First of all, also, I think about death all the time and I'm like yeah. a totally normal suburban mom, like. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but also like so many writers specifically who are death obsessed We'll write about everything except death for precisely that reason. And Plath writes about death horrifyingly at times, and, and but then really comically at other times. And but but she's death obsessed because she killed herself. It's it's just so cheap. It's really cheap. And again, it 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 does the same thing that so much of the criticism about her does, which is that it, it keeps us from really engaging with the deeper themes of her work, right? Um, it's which again, death is one of those themes. But like also, I don't. I always want to say to like Steven Spender and people writing about her kind of in the wake of her fame, her early fame, like, I thought you guys were poets. Like, I don't, I don't know if you like encountered poetry in the past, like Emily Dickinson. I mean, she wrote about death all the time. Like, I mean, she, there are some people that think that the master letters are like, she's writing to death, you know? And I mean, Whitman writes about death. I mean, you know, all goes onward and outward. Nothing collapses and to die is different from what anyone supposed and luckier. I mean, the man just said it's lucky to die. Now, admittedly, it's a different bent. He's obviously talking about regeneration and, you know, the cycle of life and death. And it's quite beautiful and comforting. It's, it's not edge, right? But it's still a poem largely about death. But somehow, I, I'm not really sure why she gets slapped with this, like, idea that she's like a goth girl. That's an amazing headline. I hope she'd have seen the irony in in someone calling Sylvia Serpentine when she'd come up with the uh, the immortal weavy asshole for Asia Wevel. Oh, that's the greatest, right? <laughs> I mean, without any character judgment of Asia Wevel at all, Asia Wevel is surely the most serpentine name in history. I know. I know. And of course, like Plath was so aware of that and like punned on it in, um, uh, in burning the letters, right? Because of course, there's the story where she burns a bunch of Hughes's papers and like the mm. like the dandruff from his uh his work table <laughs> uh, and she's like dancing around the bonfire and she says like speak and um it's like saying spells which is just like I just I'm just like Sylvia what a, you were the best you know I just who, who wouldn't have loved to witness that scene 
and supposedly a, a scrap of paper flies off of the fire and it says Asia. Because up to that point, she's not entirely sure who he's having the affair with, right? And so supposedly, mm. like, she, that's how she learns. And then she writes this incredible poem about it called Burning the Letters. And the word a hiss shows up, right? Uh, and actually, I was just reading that poem this morning. Such an amazing poem. So that, she wrote that in August of 1962. And that's another poem that didn't make it into Ariel. And this is the, I actually put this on Twitter today. She says... Uh, I am not subtle. And I was like, we know, Sylvia, we know. <laughs> it's going to take me a hot minute to find this. So I'll just, I'll find it and I'll send it off to you. But yeah, she puns on Asia's name quite a bit. It does invite it. Yeah, it does. It does. And there's also, um, I was just talking about this with Gail this morning, but the last stanza of Burning the Letters is so extraordinary. So um, this is the second part of the last stanza, but she says, my veins glow like trees. The dogs are tearing a fox. This is what it is like, a red burst and a cry that splits from its ripped bag and does not stop with the dead eye and the stuffed expression, but goes on dying the air, telling the particles of the clouds, the leaves, the water, what immortality is, that it is immortal. And so I just, to me, like the predictive nature of that, that she's literally like, oh yeah, after I die, my agonized cries will continue to be heard for all eternity. And I'm like, well, you were right, right? Um, but then, of course, Hughes famously frequently will sort of talk about the fox or the dead fox in relation to Sylvia. I think is just him kind of stealing from that poem. But. Seeing it as, his, as her way of killing him with his association with foxes. Well, his association with foxes is... is so remember in the thought fox, like the fox, it's like a fox who has the body of a man. Yeah. He's like burnt and bloody, right? And he shows up. And he, he puts his, he says like, well, in, there's, I mean, there's the poem and then of course the dream that inspires the poem, right? And so yeah, in the yeah. interview, Hughes says that he was like, the fox came in in the dream and put his, his buddy bloody paw print on the literary paper he was trying to write for his seminar and said, you know, we get to stop this, it's killing us. And so like the fox in that of course represents like the imaginary, right? Or mm. like, po poetry, right? Like, you know, give this up and just be free of criticism. So I think it's possible that like if Plath is using that image, then she's using the image of like, you've you've killed the poetic connection that we built together, right? Like that this extraordinary things we were building together are, are dead now. Um, but then like Hughes also writes a letter later uh, in the 1980s, uh, I believe to Ann Stevenson. And in it, he says that frequently like Sylvia would provoke these really strong reactions in friends of his. And then, um, you know, he would sort of like defend her and, you know, she would get angry and that, and then he says something to the effect of like, it's quite, it's quite tangled, but he says like, um, it was like a fox trying to bite the man whose hounds were trying to kill it while he tried to save it in a real situation. You would, in that real situation, like you would have no doubt why the fox was, was biting you, which is kind of interesting for lots of reasons, not least of which is like, why would the hunter try to save the fox? Like, I thought you were out. <laughs> I was unaware that like he was going to interfere in that uh, particular transaction. Um, but I, so I do think that, I mean, they're always kind of borrowing from each other, but I do think that he's sort of referring back to that here. And then there's also that poem in birthday letters where he says that like, he was coming off of like the chalk farm 
tube station and there was like a kid that tries to sell him a fox cub. I mean, I wrote about this in my, my loving Sylvioplath newsletter, but it's, it's sort of absurd. Like in the poem, it, it reads like the kid selling the fox cub, like came out of like American central casting for like Mary Poppins. Like he's like, Hey, governor, like <laughs> have a fox cub, you know? Not like, Hey, you want to buy a fox? Yeah. yeah. Like, I don't really know. Like, <laughs> Do people sell foxes on the streets of London? Like, I don't know. I don't live in London. I've been. I don't think so. Uh, I don't either, but I, I've been to London and no one's ever approached me in a bar and said, uh, can I interest you in a fox? Because I would have been interested, you know. Sure. Yeah. If anyone comes up and opens their jacket and they've got a little, <laughs> like, a, a, a range of foxes that they're trying to shift. <laughs> like how, that's irresistible, right? I know. Well, and Emma Tennant in Burnt Diaries, which is her memoir about her affair with Hughes, which is a very good book. She also says like one day they were like driving in the countryside and he's very, very grim and she keeps trying. It's funny because like she is super into Hughes, but like she's actually more interested in Sylvia throughout. So she keeps trying to get him to talk about Sylvia. Like she'll be like, so like, what about those poems? And so he finally kind of shuts her down in the scene is like, don't talk about Sylvia. And he gets really grim. And then he pulls over and they're like in the countryside. It's very beautiful. And he's very like dark and sad. And then all of a sudden, like a fox like runs up to them. And she says his whole demeanor like brightens because he like thinks it's Sylvia. The book is very funny throughout. Like in the beginning, she's trying to finance this magazine that she wants to start, which ends up being Bananas, which is like a very influential literary magazine in the 70s. She's from this really wealthy Scottish family. And so but she doesn't have any money. She's like a single mom and she's broke. And so she like goes back to her family, like castle or whatever. Um, and she knows that there's a topless picture of princess Margaret in the family album. So she like, <laughs> like I'm going to steal this. I'm going to sell it. And that's how I'm going to get the money. And then it like, it turns into this whole fiasco and she's trying to like rip the picture up and flush it down the toilet. Cause she's, because it's so funny. It's such a funny book. And then at one point she refers to herself as, well, she consistently refers to herself as Ted Hughes's sub-mistress. Like, oh, my gosh. Because <laughs> he was having, like, multiple affairs. So, anyway, yeah. It's very it was good. a pecking order. It was. It, yeah, clearly. Oh, God. aware of it. You referenced the, the, the order of Ariel being changed. And I, I wanted to ask you about, obviously, we, we mentioned the collected poems earlier. Um, and that order and, and decision of kind of... What, what is juvenilia and what is uh, what what you I mean you you considered the waste poems and uh, was it the waste poems you you quoted Ted Hughes on waste products he said waste products waste products I mean the poems he also meant like all of her short fiction all of her essays the bell jar she, I mean the woman wrote two other novels or most of two other novels too right yeah like never saw the light of day and like I mean the collected poems are. A disgrace. I mean, I, it's really, it's not a good book for many, many reasons. Um, not least of which is the juvenilia. I mean, like, come on, who even uses that term, right? <laughs> well, yeah, Alexander Pope. Yes, that's what I mean. Like, it's so old and weird. But also, please know the juvenilia ends in 1956. Guess what else? Yeah in 1956 yeah met ted hughes yeah like cute girl you'll be a woman soon right i mean like it's just it's so paternalistic it's so patriarchal it's so sexualized like the idea that like when she met this man suddenly like you know the clash of their bodies and minds produced the genius that is sylvia plath i mean that's so gross right for so many different reasons and it discounts 
all of the craftsmanship that she had learned up to that point. And I want to be very clear at no, in no way am I discounting the influence that Hughes had on Plath. He had an enormous influence on Plath, like without question. I mean, she read anthropology because of him. She read folklore because of him. You know, she met tons of other writers. Like she wrote differently. He hypnotized her. I mean, there's a, there's a slew of reasons, right? That, that Hughes's influence on Plath is, is enormously important to the scholarship of Sylvia Plath. Sylvia Plath's life and work. Um, but that does not mean that everything that Sylvia Plath did and everything that Sylvia Plath wrote previous to meeting him in February of 1956 is a waste of time. That's ridiculous, right? But I also think he was like an enormously jealous person, um, which is ironic given that she is famously painted as this like harpy who's hysterical and jealous of you know, the mere idea of him being with anyone else. Um, but he was, you know, vehemently opposed to depictions of her with other men. Um, I guess she was dating someone at the time of her death. And that person came to the inquest about her death. And like, I guess she was just like stared him down, you know, stonily and angrily. And it's like, well, I don't know. what's wrong with that? Right? Like why, yeah. why? I mean, even I really liked Heather Clark's book a lot. I thought it was wonderful, but um there are sections toward the end of it where she seems quite sympathetic to Hughes being like in a rage at Al Alvarez for Sylvia having an affair with Al Alvarez. And it's like, but he left the marriage. He was having affairs with all these other women. And like, if Sylvia had like a warm and pleasurable experience with someone who cared about her in the last tragic months of her life, like, I'm sorry, why are we still sort of judging this? You know, 50 plus years later, I, I just find that really, really grim. And I think that so much of it is this kind of Hughesian influence. You would think you would feel relief, like guilty relief. You know, if you'd wrecked a marriage and then, you know, the person had found someone else, I think you'd, have, you'd be going like, thank God. You would, right? You would do that. But that, see, but that's, I mean, even Aurelia Plath, like in the interview she gave to Harriet Rosenstein, which I think took place in 1970, the tapes don't exist from it. There's lots of, of tapes from the Rosenstein files, but um, that's not one of them. So I don't know if it, it never existed or if she uh, lost it, but regardless, um, there are extensive notes from the interview and in it, um, she, you know, Aurelia Plath uh, essentially uh, told Harriet Rosenstein, it's, he did want to get back together, right? But the thing is that like, Hughes frequently would discuss in print, in poems, or like he told Frida and he told lots of people like, oh yeah, we were trying to get back together. That's what we were talking about in the last week of Sylvia's life. And I guess he wrote about it in his journal, which I have not read um, that particular notebook, but it, it, according to Jonathan Bate, he, he wrote about that in the last week of um, Sylvia's life. But what he wanted, right? And this is what Aurelia told Harriet Rosenstein. What he wanted was to get back together with Sylvia and continue to be unfaithful, which she just, there was no, that was never going to happen. There was, she was never going to live like that. You know, it's, it's very, very clear from everything that she wrote that, you know, she either wanted their marriage as it had been, or she didn't want to be married anymore. That's kind of goes back to that idea of gaslighting, right? Because like, you know, when he's sort of telling the world like, oh, the tragedy of it, because I just sort of temporarily went insane, but then I got my stuff back together and, you know, we were going to be together. It's like, no, you know, that's just, and, and I've talked at length about this to a lot of different Plath and Hughes scholars, and they all agree. Like, yes, that is sort of what he was asking her. 
and know there was no way that that was ever going to happen. And Aurelia said like, he wanted his wife who was like the respectable, beautiful mother of his children, publishing her books, publishing his books, right. Living in the country house. And then he wanted to have a whole other life in London, but that wasn't only not going to happen. I think because of their the, the, sort of the, the psychology of their marriage, right. It, it also wasn't going to happen because of Sylvia's ambition, right? Like Sylvia was never just going to be buried in the country. She was going to be she's like, no, I need to go to London too. I have work there, you know? Mm. Um, so anyway, I think I went a bit off the rails on that answer. So forgive me. No, no, it's re it's really interesting. I, I wanted to ask you, I mean, maybe this is like by definition, an impossible question, but is uh, obviously we know that Ted Hughes burnt these, final journals and well, he possibly... said that he did we don't have proof but then there are moments where he says like presumably they may still turn up right okay right. Yeah. do we have any idea how much there is that might turn up well what a very good question um so we know that if he did burn them he didn't burn them for a while because Asia Wevel read them and Alwyn Hughes read them and so Alwyn Hughes tried to use what she claimed to have read as leverage against Alvarez at various points, because they were always trying to, the Hughes's being they, um, were always trying to get Alvarez to kind of come in on their side to these biographers. And so one of the ways that Alwyn tried to do that was essentially by saying like, well, I read those journals and I, so I know that, that she slept with you essentially, because I read her uh. it. So you had better say X, you know, because I kind of know these things. Um, and uh, Alvaro has never took the bait. He, he was quite, I think, I mean, there are things about him I find troubling, but he was mostly very, um, I guess, honorable is the word when it came to Sylvia. So anyway, um, so yeah, so they, they had to have been around uh, for quite some time because they would have been voluminous. I mean, she was a, a very, very steady uh, journal keeper. And other people read them and, and wrote about uh, what was in them. And so there, I mean, it would have been journals for the last two full years of her life, which according to Hughes, I think the last one contained entries up to a week before she died. Heather Clark speculated in, um, in Red Comet that she may have just considered the possibility of killing the children. And that that was why Hughes, um, why Hughes uh, burned them because he didn't want Frida and Nicholas to have to to read that. I mean, I I, I would find that really hard to believe, but you know, anything's possible, I guess. Especially, I guess, you know, what happened in the years since that might, I suppose, that would explain if they were around for a while and then they, you know, Asia after Asia's death, it was like, well, that can never see the light of day. But yeah, you're right. I mean, I can't imagine Sylvia, Sylvia Plath kind of seriously considering that. I, I really can't. I mean, like the, the other thing, and I'm a person that has immense um, fondness and sympathy for Asia as well. I think she was a fascinating person in her own right. Um, and if, and if you haven't, uh, her collected writings just came out with Louisiana State University Press. So if you don't have those, please do get them. They're co-edited by my colleagues and friends, Peter Steinberg and Julie Goodspeed Chadwick, who are extraordinary Plath scholars. And Julie really is the sort of biggest living or the best living scholar uh, on Asia Wevel. And anyway, so, but uh, her, her work is fascinating. 
And I, but I, I think that it's important to consider, this is a, a big part of what Julie does in her work on Asia is, is to consider them and to consider her in context and to consider Sylvia in context. So I think, um, you know, Asia was a refugee. She uh, and her family left Hitler's Germany in the 1930s. First, they went to Italy, then they uh, went to Palestine, then Asia went to England, then she went to Canada, then she was back in England. I mean, she had this incredible, she she was perceived as this like incredibly cosmopolitan person, right? Because she spoke all these languages and she had this very posh accent, right? But the posh accent was like a put on, you know, she was like playing a role because she felt like she had to. And I think by the time she ended her life and ended Shura's life, I believe her mother was dead. Her sister and her father were living, but they were living in Canada. And I, I think she felt like abandoned. Like she still felt like a refugee in many ways. I mean, she felt like a displaced person. She said in her will that she wanted to be buried quote unquote, like in any country cemetery in England. And she wanted her headstone to read, um, here lies a lover of unreason and an exile, right? Um, but Plath, like, while Plath was certainly an expat, she wasn't in the same social position, right? Like, she had a lot of family, and she had a lot of family that she knew would bring her children up. And and Ted Hughes had a lot of family, and her children were not born in like so-called, you know, disgrace or shame in the in the way that I think Asia probably frequently felt shamed by the culture, you know, when she was a single parent of an illegitimate child, but Plath's children, I mean, they were the, the light of her life, you know, that was that yeah. what she wanted more than anything. Um, they had, you know, three incredibly loving grandparents, all of which points to the fact that like, I think Asia felt like she had no way out and sure had no way out. And I think that Sylvia may have felt like mentally she had no way out at the moment where she might, I think I really believe she was in a state of psychosis when she died. Um, but she did everything she could to preserve her children's life, lives, and safety. I'm glad you brought up the the, the collected writings because I, I I wanted to to uh, ask you whether or not you what you'd made of that. So uh, thank you. Um, I, I I'm conscious of time, and I really want to ask you about loving Sylvia Plath and what and, and how how it's going and what got you what got you started. Well, it's going really well. Um, I since I got the contract. Um, like hordes of new material have presented themselves. The, the Rosenstein archive was sold mm. to Emory in January of 2020. I was lucky enough to be able to get my hands on it. Um, it's There's public access to those papers and you can also get a password to log in and listen to the audio tape. So thankfully I've been able to um, have access to that material even though the pandemic happened. That has also been kind of a hindrance in my finishing the book, unfortunately, because I wanted to get to the Beinecke and I wanted to get back to Smith and those libraries are still closed. So that's been difficult, but I've the archivists there have been amazing in terms of like helping me get copies of certain things. It's difficult with the Hughes stuff because he has uh, put restrictions in, or he had put restrictions in place. I'm sorry, you know, like the convention of writing about literature in the present tense. I, I follow that convention in my own work. So I'm constantly talking about Sylvia Plath. He's like, they're alive, which they're not alive. But anyway. Um, Plath says. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like Hughes. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Anyway. Um, but they're always in your head, presumably. So so they are actually, t- you are talking to them all the time and they're talking to you kind of thing. It's a very long conversation. Yes. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> ongoing. The conversation is ongoing. Yeah. 
Um, but Hughes put restrictions on his papers um, before his death. And so you can't make photocopies or take photographs. So that's been tough. I was able, Emory reopened where a, a big bulk of his papers are. I was able to get back there for a week in August. So I got a bunch more material, but I was supposed to spend much more time there. So that's been quite challenging because they like at Smith, they can take pictures and send you scans and they've digitized quite a bit of Sylvia's papers. But a lot of the work that I'm doing in Loving Sylvia Plath is about the construction of the Plath mythology and the editing of her work. So it's like the Hughes stuff is actually pretty vital there. So uh, I'm doing the best I can with that. But yeah, it, it's it's been an amazing ride. And I, I just can't get over like how you could just do this forever. You know, it's just like just there's always something else to discover. And uh, like I've recently been doing work about uh, archival violence which is a term um, from the American literary uh, scholar, Saidia Hartman, who she teaches at Columbia and she's just, just the most extraordinary scholar, but um, she does work about the Atlantic slave trade. And so archival violence is like stories that are written out or left out of the archive. And so I'm using a lot of her work to write about Sylvia. And it's a really delicate balance, right? Because of course, like Sylvia Plath was not a slave. It does it, it hardly needs to be said and yet it must be said. Um, but I do think that there's this extraordinary tension that is produced by looking at work about the Atlantic slave trade and looking about looking at work about the violence um, that happens to black and brown bodies historically in America and also looking at Plath, right, who emerges as this sort of like victim-like figure during second wave feminism and then is also using this racist language that is not addressed, right? So that's sort of the, the paradox of some of the work that I'm doing right now in that book. And uh, it's, yeah, I don't know. It's fascinating. It must be very exciting when new material is made available, but it must be quite a complicated feeling as well because it must you, you must be thinking, oh God, is this going to like, am I going to have to go through everything again? Or, you know, wh what am I going to find? I've done a lot of revising. Like, it's like, okay, let's overhaul this yet again. So yes, in fact, uh, but it's not, I mean, it's like, I never feel like, oh, like it's not a slog. It's just so fascinating. And I just feel like for, I mean, the book is called Loving Sylvia Plath. And part of what I write about in the preface is the, the, I lay out the term love as I understand it and as I'm using it in the book. And it's not, so Plath is so frequently understood as like a martyr, right? Um, or an idol for for women and feminists. Um, and I don't understand her that way at all. I've never understood her that way. And so for me, the term love, um, I use it more like somebody like James Baldwin uh, or Audre Lorde uses it, right? It, it, it's, a, it's a rigorous demand, right? And so if we are going to actually love Sylvia Plath, then we have to do better by her, which means we have to do better by uh, people that read her in later generations, right? And, and those people are not going to be exclusively middle-class white women. So a lot of the work that I've been doing is kind of, it's, a, it's an intersectional critique of, of Plath and Plath scholarship. Right, sounds absolutely fascinating. I can't wait to read it. Thank you. I'm very, very excited about it. Uh, and I was, there were a few moments during the pandemic. I was pregnant too, and then I had a baby. And it's like, oh my God. And you do have like, as I was going through, I mean, as I go through this process, so much sympathy for Sylvia because it's like, how did this woman write Ariel alone with these two children who were under three? I mean, I you know, I have a husband and he's here and he's like very, very present. He is actually the full-time caretaker of the kids and I am working. So I, 
you know, I, I just, it's unbelievable to me that she got anything done at all, much less yeah. some of the most transformative poems of the 20th century. So we, we, it's always written about as in terms of the wake of the collapse of her relationship, as if she's just kind of heartbroken and, and that's, that's, that's it. But she's also with looking, looking after children. Like she's looking after children. And also, I mean, and this goes back to, um, the, the, the Boitra letters, which again, we didn't, we didn't have until 2018, but um, you know, when Hughes finally left, cause he was sort of dilly dallying back and forth, you know, from like July through October of 1962. And there's a letter that she wrote to Boitra where she, she says, I drove him to the train station and I came back very gloomy expecting to come and, and feel, you know, quite depressed, but she didn't feel depressed, you know, she felt uh, relief. She felt her, a sense of herself flying back to her from all corners is what she says. And that's uh, when she wrote, I think 23 poems in 31 days, right? Which yeah. Is amazing. So uh, I don't think it was, it was heartbreak necessarily that animated a lot of those poems. I think it was um, rage and also a sense of, of precarious freedom. Um, yeah you know, that, that she, she wanted to embrace. Yeah. I don't know that there, there's a lot there that I think we're only just really starting to understand. Well, that, that's like as firm a debunking of the just crazy, uh, <laughs> uh, angle as you could get. And she, she provided it. Yeah, I, she did, but we didn't have it. And I think that's such a tragedy and I'm glad that we have some of it now, you know, I, I, I wish we had more um, and I think she wanted us to have more, you know, I mean, Plath, Jacqueline Rose wrote about this in, in The Haunting of Sylvia Plath, which is one of the great, great books on Plath ever. Um, but, you know, she says like this idea that like Plath should be kept away and secreted and, and private. I mean, Plath wanted more than anything else to be a famous writer. That is what she wanted from her life. She wanted that more than she wanted to be married and have children, right? Um, and, and she said that explicitly so many times and everything she wrote, she tried to get published, like until she couldn't get it published anymore. Like, you know, so the idea that she would have, oh no, I don't want anyone to know these things. It's like, come on. She wrote a novel about her nervous breakdown, you know? So it's pretty, it's pretty exciting stuff. I I must say, I really, I, I, I will know. I don't think I'll ever tire of, of Sylvia's story. And that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much to Emily Van Dyne. Make sure you check out some of her articles in the episode description box below. Follow her on Twitter and keep an eye out for Loving Sylvia Plath. I'll be back with another episode very soon. Until then, happy reading.